Let's talk oral surgery. This is Marcus Wong. No housekeeping, except that I have some exciting collaborations coming your way and some fun episodes, so stay tuned for those. But I want to get straight to the show. Today, I have three guests. It's a little bit different than what I've done before, but I have three residents that I'll be interviewing today. And they're not just residents. They are the residents that help run the Instagram page Women in OMFS. I brought them on the show because we have the Women in OMFS Symposium coming on next week, uh, hosted by the University of Michigan. This year, it will be a virtual symposium, and I believe this is the third year that they are running the symposium. And because it's virtual and the registration fee is quite affordable, I highly encourage many of you to join in on the conversations that go forth on that weekend. As for the main topic of the show today, I brought the guests on because I wanted to talk about the challenges that women entering OMFS face. Oral and maxillofacial surgery being a surgical specialty has historically uh, discouraged a lot of female applicants to the field. I believe even still, we are at around 10% of female OMFS in our field. Though it's getting better, the stigma against women in surgery is still an existing problem. A common thing that a lot of female surgeons hear is that she's a great surgeon for being female. That last modifier need not be included in the compliments given to a surgeon. Is it the lack of representation in our field? Is it the lack of proper mentors? Or will time be the best medicine here to help alleviate this issue? So my guests and I cover this issue. We talk about some specific reasons that might deter dental students from applying to OMS. Then we talk a bit about the successes of women in OMFS, specifically the positions that they have held and current women who are in positions of influence in our specialty. Then we talk about where we are headed, and that's kind of where the symposium comes in. And we discuss a bit about mentorships, mentees, Uh, and leadership. It was a pleasure to talk to my guests about this problem. And from our conversation, the message that I got is that we don't need any special treatment for women entering OMFS. We just need equal treatment. So thank you all for tuning in. Now I bring you Sarah Laurie Alexis. All views expressed on the show and the following episodes belong to the host or the guest and do not represent the opinions of any entity. All right. First time having three guests on the show. It's a little bit different, but it's pertinent because the Women in Symposium is next week. And so I wanted to rush this uh, interview with you guys. So thanks for being on the show. And because I have three guests, um, could you guys go in order and just kind of introduce yourself, what school you went to for dental school, and where you are at residency? Absolutely. My name is Sarah Anderson. Uh, I'm from Miami, Florida. I went to NYU for dental school, and uh, I'm at Michigan now. I'm in my chief year at Michigan. And hi, I'm Lori Donnelly. I grew up in California. I went to University of Michigan for dental school, where I met Sarah. 
when she was a resident, and I am now a resident third year out of sixth at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I'm Alexis Lenneber. I grew up in a small town, Peck, Kansas. I went to dental school in Midwestern University, and now I am in my second year out of four at Carl Foundation Hospital in Illinois. Great. And, you know, I wanted to get you guys on the show because I think the issue about whether women have an equal chance or have equal motivations to get into a surgical specialty has been on the rise. Like that problem and that conversation has been more pertinent in the recent years. And so I wanted to get you guys on the show because I believe that, you know, although research has a place in spreading information, I think our generation knows that social media really does spread it very quickly. And I think your guys' Instagram page has done that for our field. I think a lot of women follow it. A lot of men follow it as well. But it also has brought up that issue of do women in OMFS have a fair shot at getting into residency? And are they viewed the same as their male counterparts? Because there's something that I've been reading a lot in other articles and such, but a lot of women in surgery hear this phrase of, she's a great surgeon for being female. And so I think that's a uh, topic that we're going to talk about today. So can you guys expand a little bit more about the story of your Instagram page and also the symposium? Absolutely. So Marcus, thank you so much for having us on and to have this conversation. I agree. I think it's a very important conversation to have and has become increasingly more you know, in the spotlight. The Women in Oral Surgery Instagram page started in 2018. It actually was the product of the first ever Women in Oral Surgery Symposium. And at that meeting, we had a conversation and uh, it was really about mentorship, sponsorship, and role models. And one of the low-hanging fruit that we saw was we should just make an Instagram page, make ourselves, put ourselves out there, and also just stay in touch with each other. It was really about creating friendship and networking. And so by the end of that day on the, of the symposium, actually, it was uh, Dr. Lizzie uh, Guadagni at UNC. She had already started the page and, you know, spread the login and the password amongst everyone who was there. And the idea was that it always was going to be this roving page that, you know, different residents would be able to post on and really share our mutual experiences within our residencies. And where is the Women's Symposium in this? Are they a part of your guys' group or are they a separate entity? I would say the lines are blurred. Uh, the Instagram was the reason that, or I would say the symposium is the reason that the Instagram exists, but it, they're not directly connected and certainly not at this point. Um, right now, it's run by several uh, women oral surgeons, all residents at different stages uh, in their residency. And so it, it really isn't a part of the symposium, but kind of a product of it, I would say. Yeah. And right now, I would kind of say the symposium is more, it's, it's, there's a lot of attendings involved, you know, that definitely started out of University of Michigan. There's now Dr. Justine Moe is sort of spearheading with a bunch of other attendings involved from around the country too. There's resident involvement, of course, too. The Instagram right now is the way it's sort of transformed is to be more of a resident run account. And so right now there are eight residents who are involved in the content and um, running the page, answering questions, etc. But that could change over time, which residents run it. The goal is just that it'll sort of stay a resident page is how we view it kind of now, as opposed to where it started at the symposium level. So yeah, the lines really are blurred. They're sort of connected entities, but not the same. You know, I came across the Instagram page um, earlier in my dental school days, but also recently when we had something happen over this uh, weird time period of COVID. There was a paper by the 
Journal of Vascular Surgery. It's now redacted and my listeners can find that. I don't want to specifically point out the authors or the actual paper itself, but people can find that online. It was about the presence of social media, but specifically the unprofessional nature of social media. And there was some issue about that with, I think, bikinis being on the paper. Do you guys want to talk a bit about that paper and the role your group has served to help support awareness for women? I think that paper kind of in general, whether it meant to or it didn't mean to, kind of brought up some insecurities that maybe some women have or some fears that they don't want to be themselves or portray what they like to do, whether that's sit on the beach in a bikini, go for a hike, work out at the gym, whatever that is. But it almost seemed like it tried to keep women in a box. At least that's just my personal take on that. Um, I know there were some questionable things with some of the people kind of creating fake accounts to secretly watch some women in the vascular field, which was just uncalled for. And I think our Instagram page in general really does the opposite of that. We're all for empowering women, supporting women. Um, I mean, we support men as well, obviously, but it's really a place for women to not be afraid of who they are and not be afraid to really pursue their dreams and aspirations. And it's just kind of a place for that open space. Yeah. Andrea Burke, who was the winner of the um, Stebner Award last year, in her article about um, you know, what she sees for the future of, of women supporting women, she talks about something called the shine theory, which is you know we shine together. And I think that's what our Instagram page is really all about. It's just highlighting each other, you know, the ups, the downs of what it means to be a woman in OMFS. And I see it as a space where, you know, like these types of groups arise when there are like minority groups in a sense, just being like in a specialty or in a group where maybe you are a woman in a residency program and that program has never had a female resident before. And that still exists where there are people who are getting into a residency and they're, you know, even in the most recent years, they're like the first female resident there in our specialty and just having a space for them where no matter where they're at in residency or, you know, even practicing, it doesn't, it's not, you know, dental students who might be looking to go into it. It's just where they can see, Hey, there are others in a similar boat as me and here are some of the things I can do. And just having that exposure to other either role models, mentors, or just accomplishments in general. An oral surgeon named Dr. Natalie Eden, she's a practicing oral surgeon somewhere in the Midwest, I believe, and she wrote about the way forward to bring uh, unity for women and men in OMFS is these four principles of unification, positivity, presence, and mentorship. And I think in this, this, this one answer, you guys hit on those. And so uh, I guess we're done with the show. <laughs> <laughs> For the listeners, we had 53 minutes of technical difficulties, and so we're, we're definitely fatigued from the computer screen. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to talk a bit about why women historically haven't gone into OMFS. I think some of my listeners might not know about it and where we are right now with it. Because the ADA published something recently, I believe in 2018 or 2019, there are equal percentage of women and men in dental schools. And... Among them that apply to residencies, 50% are women. But then the ones that go into oral surgery, though, it still lies at around 10%. And this was back in, I think, 2014, that's the data I saw. Can you guys talk about why women historically have not gone into OMFS? So I think you're absolutely right. Gender parity has really been achieved within dentistry 
in general. So the incoming dental students, they're about 50% women and men, but women just aren't applying as often to oral surgery. I think that there are some perceived barriers, and I think that there are some actual barriers for women when they are applying to oral surgery. Some of the perceived barriers, you know, they're almost myths, like you need to be strong and have big muscles to go into oral surgery. You can't have a family. You, you know, heaven forbid you want to have a, have a child. These are myths, obviously, but myths take a long time to be dismantled. So those perceptions are there within dental students. And part of what we are trying to do really is to dismantle those myths. I think that there are some actual barriers, though. I think that women aren't encouraged to go into oral surgery. I was fortunate enough to have mentors that said, oh, you should really think about this. You should go into oral surgery. But some women are actually discouraged from applying to oral surgery. No, don't do that. That's not for you. You don't want to do that. And if you hear enough of that, then maybe you just don't apply. Um, I also was fortunate. I went to NYU. I had incredible mentors. And it really was only in retrospect that I could say to myself, there were about five, six women who were either attending oral surgeons, for example, Dr. Marcy Levine or Dr. Carlos, who was the program director there at the time, who I saw as very successful women in oral surgery. And there were some of the um, chief residents were women, some of the the mid-level residents were women. And so I said, that looks like me. I could do that. And that's a, that is a gift. And I'm so fortunate because now that I've had the opportunity to learn more about mentorship and having role models, I realized that that was probably a huge part of what led me to pursuing oral surgery. I think that it's multifactorial, but I think that there are, you know, there's still work to be done. And that's, that's a story, Sarah, that I've actually heard many, many times over and over about, and myself too. Um, when I applied to dental school, I wanted to be a general dentist. And I, of course, looked kind of into specialties and all of that. And I had shadowed a private practice oral surgeon nearby who also had been in academia. He's actually like pretty famous in the area. And he's like football player, like six, you know, in in college football player, like big guy, like very friendly, never discouraged me at all. But seeing him like rush around the office with that kind of intensity and just the way he interacted, you know, everyone has a different style of interaction. And when I saw that, I actually was thinking like, this might be too intense of a field for me. I did air quotes there for the, for the listeners. <laughs> um, and so there was this perception that, you know, I'm a little bit meek or something, or I'm quieter than people. I don't know that this field would be for me, but um, I did go to Michigan for dental school. And as it turns out, you know, there were Sarah and other residents there who are cl- were clearly doing it and did not have personalities like the traditional sort of bro oral maxillofacial surgeon that I mentioned, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you, when you're in the shoes, at least in my shoes, and I imagine because I've heard the story from many people, the shoes of other female dental students, you just, it's a hard time picturing yourself there. And then you go to these meetings. And of course, it's a very hard field just for anyone to get into male or female or anything. Takes a lot of work, a lot of dedication. You have to be sure that you want to go into it and so when you don't I imagine if you don't have that kind of visual mentors then you might be less likely to go into it but of course no one can say why exactly does any one person decide or not decide to do something but I mean we think that has a huge role in it just kind of putting my two cents in I love hearing your guys' stories and I wish that my story was like that 
um, which is why I think I'm so grateful for the mentorship program that we have now. I think my kind of road into oral surgery was the opposite, where I was one of the ones that was told, this isn't for you. I had, I'm now married, but we had been together, I don't know, eight years. I was told that he would leave me. He would cheat on me. I would never have kids. It just wasn't for me. I had very bad things said to me. And I'm so thankful. I I eventually got into an internship because I was like, you know what, maybe just one year and I'll see. Maybe they're right. Maybe this isn't for me. So I did my internship. And then during that, other things happened. And so I'm very thankful for Dr. Angie Rake and Dr. James Swift at the University of Minnesota, which is not where I did my internship. But I found them at Amos and I talked to them and they were really, really supportive and were really like some of the first people that really kind of turned my viewpoint into a more positive one that, yes, I can do this. And um, so I'm so thankful for them um, and also thankful for the mentorship program. And just like I tell all of my mentees, don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't do it and don't ever second guess yourself because I did that and I'm glad I didn't stick with it. (laughs) What you guys are hitting on is that everyone has people that are going to tell you that it's not right for you. And I think women have faced that a lot in surgery. And I see this even in like plastic surgery papers and such. And it seems like the most important thing that like a common feature among all your guys' story is having a mentor, having someone where you look at them and say, wow, I see myself in them. They are like me and they have done what I want to do. And I think that's very inspiring. And I think, yeah, the Roe Amos, uh, there's a mentorship program through them. A lot of people have utilized it and have been connected to other like-minded surgeons. Let's talk a bit about the historical problems or the historical barriers that people have put forth saying that women face. There is the physical strain of residencies, the idea that women are not as strong or don't have the endurance as men to do all these crazy cases. Also, it's about the, oh, to have a happy home, the woman must stay at home. And it's about the fact that uh, women lack uh, mentors and models to go after. Could you guys talk about those three topics and how that applies to your residency so far and just kind of your own personal life? So the first one about women, you know, not being quite as strong. I just have one word for it. It's finesse. And that's that's the only answer. The other one is about mentors. I think it's also important to really say at this point that men and women can mentor men and women. So I have excellent male mentors. And I have excellent female mentors. I have mentees that are male dental students, and I have mentees that are female. And I cherish all of those relationships. Women juggle more roles. Women tend to be married to professional working husbands or you know partners, I should say. So um, there was a, a recent study that showed 97% of general surgeon, female general surgeons, are in a dual professional relationship. And of those, 100% of their husbands work full-time. So that means that there's not a stay-at-home partner in that relationship, at least not you know permanently. Of that, I think it was one-third of men, though, are married or in that same relationship where they're in a dual partnership. So it's on the rise, for sure. Men also have this same problem, but women face it at a higher rate. So we juggle more roles. We wear more hats. 
you know, I think we do it well, but that's just the reality. I think women struggle, they have more work home conflict. And because of that, they have higher rates of burnout. And so all of those things are interconnected. And it's not a reason why somebody shouldn't become a woman oral surgeon, but it's something that's important to talk about and to address and to come up with solutions for. And I would add to that too, with uh, the home roles. I mean, we're entering an era where things are not binary anymore. There's not just men and women. There's not just, you know, it's not always just a black and white. There's always shades of gray. And so these traditional roles, it's almost the whole of society is changing where it's really no one's business, whether a man, a woman, or a partner decides to take the leave for a child or to stay home permanently or to not, or to have a dual working. Like all of these models are fair game. There's no one, you know, American dream anymore of a white picket fence and a wife at home wearing high heels in the kitchen or anything like that. Everyone just kind of lives their own life. And as long as you can make it work, I think that any model, it doesn't have, you don't have to conform to like a specific model of what the roles are. That being said, agree with what Sarah said, that there definitely is sort of a traditional expected model that people do find themselves gravitating towards. But just, I think people are realizing more and more that there is not like a binary solution to things. And for the strength piece of it, I would I would ask people who say that, you know, have you ever seen an orthopedic surgery and how big their plates and screws are? And have you seen our millimeter and fractions of millimeters thick plates and screws in the face? And do you really think that brute force is the answer there? And coming from me, my aunt is also, she's an orthopedic surgeon. So if my aunt, who's a female, can do orthopedic surgery, I think women can do oral and maxillofacial surgery with our much smaller <laughs> hardware for sure. Oh, and the mentor piece, I'd agree that I definitely have mentors of both genders. And it really, you just need to surround yourself with mentors. And I think the reason though, it's, it's important to have a specific women's mentorship program, which, you know, it's not to say that that is an exclusive thing or something like that. It's just that traditionally, the types of people who reach out to this program are people who didn't know how to find a mentor otherwise, or maybe there wasn't a female resident available at their institution that they were able to connect with. So it's not to say, you know, we only help this type of person. It's just more, it's where the need is, I guess, is how I see it. I think I agree with Al. I do agree with everything that you guys said. But the strength part, I will say that I am very physically strong. So <laughs> there's maybe one guy in my program and just by size, who is stronger than me, but I could take them. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have kids, so I get to work out. So that's kind of my my way of, of doing that, I guess. You know, in terms of physical strength, I think I read somewhere that, I mean, my mentors have always told me when I was pulling out teeth in the dental schools or in residency, you shouldn't be sweating pulling teeth. You shouldn't be straining and turning all bright red pulling teeth. It's all about what um, Sarah said earlier about finesse. That's why it's called skill, to have skill in pulling out teeth or having skill in doing surgery. Oh, yeah, I always say, let the tooth talk to you. It's going to come out that way. So finesse it out. <laughs> You're going to have to teach me how to <laughs> have the tooth talk to me. I've, I had a really hard case yesterday. and <laughs> I wish it, it would talk to me to just come out. I definitely think that the whole idea of happy home, the you know women not staying home is not going to create a happy home and that there's going to be this kind of this imbalance between the work life. And that's, it's been proven wrong. And that now in today's era, having a family 
it's not gender specific. It's depends on your situation and your partner's way you guys want to pursue a family. But there is one biological thing that women have to do that we don't, I don't have to do. And I, I'm talking about this because I'm starting my OB-GYN rotation actually tomorrow. <laughs> women have to bear life. They have to carry life for about uh, nine months. You know, Lori, you recently were pregnant and you gave birth. And I want to just ask you a little bit about how, you know, were you able to take leave during this time? Were you able to take leave after? How did you endure going through residency while giving birth to a child and bearing a child for this long time? Yeah, so I want to say first off, she's exactly three weeks old as of today. So yes, I am currently on leave. Um, I always try to call it parental leave, even though everyone defaults to calling it maternity leave, because there's this idea that, yes, biologically, the women do have a child. So therefore, there is a more medical health reason. But I think people are starting to understand that there's a real role for, you know, the father or partner to be at home as well during these early days uh, with the child. As to how did I do it during residency, I think it's important to remember that there's not one entity called pregnancy. So it's really different for everyone who goes through it. You know, the health conditions that pop up are different. The physical, you know, everything is different. And so incidentally, I did a, a takeover on our Instagram recently when I was, what, 37 weeks pregnant. Um, so I talked about this a lot on there. But Going back a bit, you know, when I entered residency, I was one of those people who I actually didn't wear my wedding ring to any of the interviews because I was kind of self-conscious that people would ask about it and people would ask about, are you planning on getting pregnant? Are you married? Um, which I have heard that people have been asked that in this day and age. So it's not such an outlandish thing to worry about. So that's a little bit sad that I did worry about that. Uh, but I was someone who was not going to have children during pregnancy just you know, I didn't want to add that stress. I thought there would be a better time for it. But the thing is, plans don't always pan out. The pandemic has shown everyone that that the best plans of entire countries and the world can just get thrown awry with, with a virus. <laughs> so and in the same way, you can't always know what your mindset's going to be if you're joining a four or six year long residency. And unfortunately, I do think there are some programs that are more or less, you know, accepting of the idea of a woman becoming pregnant. And a lot of it is a don't ask, don't tell almost culture in our specialty, if I, if I can use that phrase, where you kind of just don't say anything. And for the most part, then it, it only comes up if it's ever put to the test. And so my program director, Dr. Alda Fisher, she actually did her residency here at University of North Carolina, and she was pregnant as a chief resident I don't want to say many years ago, I'm not Dr. Fisher, if you're listening, I'm not saying you're old, you're <laughs> very, very young. But um, she was the first one in our program to become pregnant. And she only took one week off um, after having her baby. And she went right back to work. And that is not the only person who I've heard say that I talked to other people when I was considering doing this thing. And other people who have taken one week, two weeks, so the, the short answer is, for most people, there is no standard guaranteed leave in our specialty. There's no agreed upon guideline of how long will someone get off if they do have a baby during residency. Unfortunately, that's something that nobody asks in interviews because, I mean, you as the applicant is worried about matching in the first place. So you don't feel that you're in a position of power to investigate the leave policies or it might portray you as someone who is planning on using it. And I mean, it just doesn't come up. There's no standard. So for my program, because I have an understanding program director, I sort of 
went in, I had a conversation with her. I think I was 12 weeks pregnant. She was like, you shouldn't even be telling me at this point, but she was very excited for me. Her actual words, her first response was, I knew it. I was like, well, how'd you know it, Dr. Fisher? Because this was a pandemic and we had not seen each other face to face. But she was excited and we agreed upon six weeks. And of course, I'm still using my vacation week for that. And I will take extra call to make it fair to my co-residents. But the short answer is yes, I'm taking leave and I feel happy with my leave and I feel that it's adequate. But I do have a supportive partner who's going to help out when I go back because uh, that's a question I got asked a lot on the Instagram as well is how are you going to manage having a young, you know, under three month old when you go back? Well, it, again, it depends on your individual situation. But I think the the long and short of it is, and I'm kind of being long winded here, but I wish that we would be able to have this conversation about what constitutes an appropriate leave in our specialty. The concern has been that other people have to take up the slack if you are gone. But the important thing to know is that, I mean, anything can happen to anyone. You could get hit by a car and you could need to be out and that can happen to a male or a female. You could uh, have someone quit your residency program that's in your same year and the program has to find a solution to that. So I really don't think that having a child should be considered any different from any of those medical or, you know, necessary situations. I absolutely agree, Lori. And I, applaud you for, you know, being on the Instagram uh, pregnant and sharing your story. And I think that there really has to be a destigmatizing of female residents who are pregnant and have kids during their residency. I had been, who's three years old now, um, when I was in residency, I had a conversation with my program director, who was Dr. Edwards at the time. And I said, I want to have kids. Can we plan this out? I'm a planner, if you can't tell. And uh, we found a time that made sense. And uh, Ben came out to the day exactly when he needed to, but that doesn't always happen. So the, I'll tell you this story too. So the first woman in oral surgery symposium was on a Friday and Saturday. I was 39 weeks pregnant. Monday, I took step two and was having contractions the whole time. And Wednesday, Ben was born. So, <laughs> you know, it's possible. You squeeze it in and uh, you make it happen. You make it happen. You really do squeeze it in. (laughs) I was squeezing into a lot of things at that point, I know. I remember seeing you, and I would not have guessed you were 39 weeks. (laughs) That's amazing. Yep, yep. He was was born on that next Wednesday. But it's about, yeah, having people, program directors, chairs of your department who are forward-thinking, who understand, who are willing to work with you um, to find the best time so that you can reduce the stress on your co-residents and on the people who are uh, in your program. Um, but certainly it's possible. And I, I love calling it paternity leave because, you know, men also have kids during their residency and it's hard on them. I mean, two of my chief residents when I was an intern had kids, young kids, and it was hard on them. You know, it, they weren't even able to take any time off as a matter of fact. I think that, you know, one of them, their wife was in labor and we were rounding. <laughs> So it's it's equally hard on men who have kids during residency. And it's just important to have this conversation. I, if anything, would love to start seeing programs start offering up their information about what leave would be like, what, what are the policies, what are the rights of the residents at that institution, so that women don't have to ask, so women and men don't have to ask. I think that that would be a great thing to see you know, over the next five years or so. I think that's a great goal. How did your co-residents respond to you guys taking leave? 
my co-residents were incredibly supportive. Everyone was incredibly supportive. And I would say the same. Um, incidentally, they're both women as well. We were the first all-female class in OMFS history, I believe, at UNC. But, you know, even if they weren't, the whole residency program is supportive. And in general, we have had to make provisions for people missing in certain years because of various reasons. And I think that nobody called me out. Nobody said anything negative at all. And nobody even questioned, oh, will we be able to make up for this absence? And I think what also helped was going in, like Sarah said, I mean, I definitely didn't go to my program director before I got pregnant, but once I did, I came in with actually a a printout and like a document that I had made of like sort of all the things I've done so far. This is to show I'm in good standing, you know, the plan essentially. And I think that's the key is communication. If you have a supportive environment, I can't speak to all residencies, whether there would be a supportive environment, but that's something we obviously aim to work towards in our field is you know, making sure that you don't have to think about, should I apply to this place? Is it friendly to that type of family vibe? And you know, I've actually gotten questions from men too about, you know, family, things like that when they're applying. So it's not, it's definitely, I agree with Sarah, not isolated to a, a woman only problem. It's just that that is how it's perceived traditionally is that it's a female problem. I think to recruit and to retain a diverse workforce in oral surgery, we have to be having these conversations. Um, I think that it's it's imperative. From my observation, it's not a question about how large is your program to then accommodate for someone taking leave. Because even at my program, you know, we take two residents per year and we have many residents with families. And so I don't think it's more about the size of the program. It seems like it's more about how tolerant is your program and understanding of your family goals. Does the program consider the program the essential priority or do they consider the quality of life of their residents? And I think the quality of life of residents has become a more important topic lately. One of my mentors said, you residents nowadays are so soft. You guys complain so much. And But we complain in the right ways. I think we are seeing the, the reality of physician burnout, low quality of life, and that in turn translates to poor patient care. I mean, how can you provide adequate patient care when your program's telling you, no, you can't leave. You need to come back tomorrow after having birth, Lori. And so I'm, I'm glad that your group is doing what it's doing. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the successes of women in OMS and specifically the positions that has been held by some women. Um, I read somewhere since 1960, we've had 50 women uh, serve on various Amos committees. And that sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. And 1960 is not that long time ago. It's pretty recent in terms of the history of dentistry. Could you guys talk a bit about some of the significant women that have kind of tread forth our profession? Namely, I mean, there's Dr. Stephanie Drew, who took, uh, I think, the presidency role at, I believe, ACOMS. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's some really great people to draw on that have been really pioneers for women in oral surgery. Um, of course, we always talk about uh, the matriarch who is Elaine Stubner. Um, she was the first woman to graduate from an oral surgery program, and that was in 1958. And, you know, since then, there have been women who have served on various committees within Amos. Uh, but currently, uh, Dr. Sacco, she's the first woman to be on the board of trustees within Amos. And um, Dr. Lee is the clinical director of the NIDCR. So that's pretty amazing. 
And as you mentioned, Dr. Drew, she um, is the past president of ACOMS, and she was the first woman to be elected into that position. We also have a lot of, you know, program directors who are women, program chairs who are women. We have 11% of program directors are women and 8% of department chairs. I think there's a a long way to go there, um, but, you know, there are women in leadership positions. And I just wanted to point out, which I always think is a crazy number, Dr. Stubner, in 1958, you know, the first woman OMFS, and then it took 25 years before there was another female OMFS. I always just, that blows me away. Like how (laughs) that, so that when you consider that, it's really not that long ago. (laughs) The good news is that in the short period of time, we've definitely increased our numbers in OMFS, but definitely not enough. There was a recent paper that I read about um, males' perception of women in OMFS, and I do want to talk about the results a little bit. And I know I didn't give you guys the notes for this. I recently read it. And, you know, 91% of practicing male OMS thinks that there is nothing wrong with having women in OMS. But yet, that means that there's 9% of men who believe that there is some sort of difference between men and women in OMFS. And I think that's still brings light into that this is still a pertinent topic. This still needs to be talked about to bring more women into OMFS and to provide equal opportunity for all these applicants. I have the thing that just popped into my head immediately when you said that there are 9%. I I wouldn't say that we're the same. So I definitely think men and women are different. But I think it's almost like the 9% in my mind when I read that, think of women as being inferior. And so that is, the I think, the topic that kind of needs to change because there's definite differences. I mean, we've talked for quite a few, I don't know how long we've been talking, maybe an hour, about our differences and what we have to face. And I mean, these two women have children and everything that they have done to get them up to that point. I've thought about all those steps to get me to that point, which my male counterparts, my co-residents, they don't think about. And I've had this conversation with them. They've never once thought about talking to their program director or having to bring in a sheet of paper saying, I'm in good standing. This is why, you know, those are just things that don't pop into their heads, but it, pops into ours because we've been kind of, I don't want to say conditioned, but we've had to constantly think about how we're proving ourselves and how we we want to show that we belong here. So I think those numbers just show that things are moving in the right direction and us talking about these topics and, and not letting um, the, I guess, conversation kind of go silent is, is a big step. Yeah, I think we need to bring men into the conversation so that they understand where we're coming from um, and they have to be part of the solution um, in general. So I I think that it's important to have those conversations and face those barriers and those biases. And one of my most beloved co-residents, who was my chief when I was an intern, he and I had great conversations. And one of the things he said was, you know, before I had you as my intern, I was a little hesitant to have a woman, um, you know, be my intern. I just didn't know how it was going to go down. I didn't know how the banter was going to be. I was unsure. And, you know, we had a great relationship. And I would say by the end of the year, all of those reservations were gone. Not because I'm so great, but just because once you once you break that down, you can just move on. And so I think that really bringing men in, involving them in the conversation, showing them the light, you know, is, is really kind of the only way forward. 
two thoughts that brings up to my head is number one, you know, I mentioned that we were part of the, my co-residents and I at UNC were the first all-female class. Well, in their graduating speeches, and we had a great relationship with our three male chiefs who were all above six foot tall. I stand at five one, just as an aside. <laughs> they all in their speeches mentioned that same thing. They were very like kind of apprehensive about having this all-female class of interns. But then all of them universally said that we were excellent interns. And it's almost, it's just strange that the the perception is that we have to prove ourselves, just like Alexis said. Women, right now, we have to think about these things. We have to bring all of our accomplishments and we have to talk about them or they're not noticed, that kind of thing. Um, and in the paper you cited, Marcus, uh, 91% agree that there's nothing, quote, wrong with having, having like a female MFS was sort of the wording there. That almost is the wrong statistic to me because you should be thinking what what do the female OMFSs add that's different or what, you know, it's like what Sarah said earlier about attracting and retaining the most diverse group of people will actually give you the best applicants, the best candidates for residency because when you're picking from only a homogenous pool, like if you're only catering to a white male pool, for example, then you only get the best of that bunch. But if you're catering to all ethnicities, all races, and all genders, you're going to actually retain the best candidates because you're picking from a larger pool. So it's almost like you shouldn't be asking if there's something wrong, but like, what are the benefits? What are the positives? To add to that, so Scott Page, who some of your listeners might know, he wrote a book called The Diversity Bonus, which is exactly what you're saying there, Lori. And there's research to back the, you know, the idea that a diverse team is a more productive team, a more successful team. And so what are women bringing to the table? Well, we're bringing diversity, diversity of sure appearance, but also of idea. So that, you know, we come from a different place, a different background. Not, you know, I don't think any of us are trying to hide the fact that men and women do bring different things to the table. And there is an advantage to that. And Scott Page, incidentally, just to say he spoke at our second Women in Oral Surgery Symposium. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what you had said, Sarah, that made me think of this, but so when I was accepted into Carl, I was the second female to ever be accepted. Oh, I know why. So I was the second female to only be accepted into the program behind Dr. Jill Weber, who's practicing in Ohio, and that was 10 years before me. So hospital-wide, my program was known as the boys, the guys. So people would pass us in the hall walking through rounds and be like, hey guys. And then they would see me and be like, oh, you guys have a nurse now? And I'm not kidding. It took six months to a year before the hospital was like, oh, there's a female in oral surgery. Oh, there's a female in oral surgery. So it's it was just constantly having to prove myself and, and show that I am one. And I kind of hate that I would say this, but I would say, oh yeah, I am one of the guys. Oh, I'm one of the guys. I'm just as good as the guys. I'm like, no, I'm Dr. Lineber. I am a female and I'm going to be an oral maxifacial surgeon. Like it kind of took a little bit for me to change that uh, narrative as well. My current chief, he's seen a few interactions where some of the nurses will question me or I had one nurse say, oh, well, you're the doctor and air quotes to me. And then somebody else saw and he had later apologized. But my current chief was like, you know what? I've never seen anyone have to deal with some of the things that you've had to deal with as a female. And it was almost validating that he said that, but it was also 
it, it was so nice to know that he sees it as well. And he's doing his part to try and correct those behaviors of others as well. So yes, bringing male counterparts into it to, to fight with us is huge. It's similar stories I've heard in dental school of my female colleagues who are treating their patients. And so they come in and say, hi, uh, Mr. Whatever. And then the patient's like, uh, where's the doctor? You must be the assistant. And I've had this happen many times to my colleagues and unfortunately have seen them break down in clinic and cry because it's very sad to experience that after getting into dental school. You already went through all the trouble of getting into dental school or oral surgery, and yet you face the same issue of unfair treatment. You know, it's it's different for me. I guess a personal thing that I went through is it's not that I ever got called an assistant or even got called a nurse because you don't really expect that out of men sometimes. But something that I've noticed just be me being Asian. And when I used to go extern at some of these Southern programs where it's largely Caucasians, people would just let me into the ORs. People would let me into clinics without any identification, no badge, because they were like, he must be a doctor. You know, like you, you wouldn't be an Asian person in an all white city <laughs> in the hospitals. And so it's better than being called an assistant, but it's still that, oh, wow, we are not where we should be at as a society, which it's, it's sad, but, you know, at least we're making our way forward. It seems like the answer for this problem is getting people to leadership boards, getting more mentors out there, getting more awareness through, you know, social media and just all these influencers that are available, but also time. As, as they say, time is the best medicine. And unfortunately, we have to abide by that. Alexis, you're wearing uh, the woman in symposium shirt. And so I do want to move on to that topic as we kind of end this meeting here. What is the symposium going on? Because we have it next week, I believe, or next, next week, March 5th and 6th. Could you guys expand on what the Women in Symposium is about and how people can get connected? Yeah, so I, I can touch on that. So the Women in Oral Surgery Leadership Symposium is the idea behind it is it's supposed to be a, a yearly symposium. Um, where we're bringing together women and men from across the country to really discuss what it means to be a female oral surgeon and to talk about you know, some of the challenges that we face, but then also kind of most importantly to provide the people who attend with some real tangible clinical and real life skills that they can walk away from with from the symposium. So this year, our theme is on communication and specifically up, upon the idea of amplification. So we'll touch on ways that you can amplify your own voice um, and promote yourself uh, within your profession. We'll touch on ways that you'll be able to amplify the people around you, the women around you to lift each other up um, and the way that we can amplify women on a national level. Certainly that's something I think that we do well through the Instagram, but also getting women into leadership roles, getting women to speak at more conferences and having more women author papers within our specialty. And so the symposium this year, as you said, it will be virtual. It's on March 5th and 6th. There's a, a virtual kind of happy hour on the 5th, and then it's a half-day event on the 6th. We have some really great speakers, and I'm really looking forward to it. There are two topics I saw on the agenda, and one's about how to be an effective mentor. The other one is about how to be an effective mentee. And if you know, one of you guys can talk about that, because... I think that uh, some of my listeners want to help be a mentee, want to cultivate this desire or this opportunity among their mentees, but they don't know how. And also some mentees, they don't know what to do because although 
even if they want to go into oral surgery and they're female and they're like, okay, I'm going to contact Dr. Dylan. You know, sometimes it's intimidating to just cold email someone. Yeah, I think one, both of those topics are great topics. And I know, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, but Karen, he, who's a dental student, um, will be doing the talk for how to be an effective mentee. So I think that is such a great topic because I think we can all remember what it's like to want to reach out to somebody who's in a position of above you or a position of power and you're intimidated or you're afraid to not be yourself or to 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 do something like hide your wedding ring which I did too. I think those are great topics to ask the pertinent questions because I think it's extremely important to get your answers in the beginning and to know if those answers are right for you because of maybe and I and I did I had um I think we all have four or five mentees per person. Um, I recently, I think six months ago, one of my mentees emailed me. She sent a very heartfelt email and was like, you know what? I I think general dentistry is just what I want to do. I'm going to go into practice with my dad. And she she made her decision not to pursue oral surgery, which in a way is great. I kind of did feel like a, a bad mentor. I was like, did I discourage her? I hope I didn't. But I think I, I thought about it and I was like, it's great because she got her answers. She asked the questions. She has a better direction and we were able to help her, help her get there. So I think don't be afraid. Ask, yeah, ask what you want. So incidentally, Karen, he is actually my mentee and um, I'm so proud of her. She matched this year. She'll be going to UCLA and uh, she, I would say we had a really great relationship and it kind of encapsulated exactly, I think, a great mentee. A mentor relationship. It's a two-way street. I think the mentor has to make themselves available. I think the mentee has to remember that mentors tend to be really busy people. So continue to reach out to them. Keep asking questions. Keep engaging. Um, you know, lean on us in any way that we can help. Uh, it's important to remember that some mentor-mentee relationships can be toxic and to exit, you know, stage left when, when you are in a relationship with a, a mentor that might not be suiting you. Um, and to find as many mentors as possible would be my advice. So you're not relying on just one person. Um, you're relying on a group of people to help guide you. Yeah. And I would say, I remember too, that it's, it's difficult when you're a dental student trying to reach out to attendings and residents, and it feels like this very scary world that you are not a part of yet. And persistence and also not taking it personally, if you don't get a response to your first, second or third email. I mean, I would just say persistence and don't be embarrassed if you've sent multiple communications. I mean, if you get a response to one of them, that's great. And if you don't, I promise they're not sitting there awake at night thinking, oh, this person who emailed me three times and getting annoyed by it, you know, so just spreading your net far. And then when you find those good mentors, keeping that relationship up with them. I mean, ideally, the mentor would check in. I try to check in with my dental student mentees. But again, the mentee can also check in with the mentor, you know, send a message, just checking in or, you know, if you've had new questions come up, you know, just both sides being open to the communication. I think that's key. And and also, Alexis, quick pause here. Um, so I've reached the limits of human bladder. So <laughs> I will take a quick uh, one minute break. Okay, deal. Perfect. I'll be right back. 
Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Please make sure to leave a review and a rating on the podcast and follow the Instagram page that you can find at Let's Talk Oral Surgery on Instagram. And if you have any comments, criticisms, suggestions for the show, I am always open to them. I reply to every email, and so please send them my way. And now let's get back to the show. All right, I am back. Alexis, I cut no, you off. Fine. Did you want to expand I was just going to say the same kind of... Uh, idea that a mentee should have multiple mentorships. I had set up kind of a Zoom meeting for all my mentees and myself to get together and talk. And so my mentees who were at different dental schools were able to talk and just know that they have other people and they all exchanged contact information. So it was nice to put other people together who are on the same path so that they could talk. That we, I did the same with um, several of my mentees, and now they're all talking, and I'm like not even part of the mix. So I'm like a little jealous, <laughs> and I'm so proud of them, and I'm so happy they have their their network now too. Their little group, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, you know, I I mentor some people as well, and I think the role of a mentor is extremely important. You're essentially shaping the next generation. I think, yes, sometimes it's tiring. Sometimes you don't want to text back. You don't want to do Zoom meetings. It takes time and it takes actually an emotional investment sometimes with your mentors. And although I find it difficult to fit into schedule sometimes, it is extremely important if you are committed to one, increasing diversity in the field, but two, helping others accomplish their dreams because you have had someone help you before. You know, I'm very excited for the symposium. Uh, The three of you, I think, have done a great job helping expand this awareness. And and thank you again for being on the show. And just to close off, I just have some two questions that I ask everyone. And so, you know, where can listeners find you? Well, we all are on the Women in Alma Fest Instagram page. We each day, there's a different resident kind of controlling that monitoring that day so when you write in or send a message we read that and we'll respond so you can reach any of us on there i have instagram as well it's just my first and last name alexis lenneberg dmd same mine is just my name sarah anderson i think it's mddds or ddsmd one of those two <laughs> you got to be proud of your dds sarah. i know yeah i am very proud of it i i yeah i absolutely love being a dentist you got to put the DDS first, even though I put it first. <laughs> See, I, I put the DDS first, but it's because it ends in MD2. I don't know. And it's the chronological order. So either way, I think it works. I think, yeah, I put them in the, the order in which I got them. <laughs> um, I also have my own Instagram. I It's some variant of my name. If you search my name, Lori Donnelly, you should be able to find it. And then if you just message into the women's Instagram, you know, you can ask for someone specific or you can just ask in general and someone will get back. Yeah, and I'll put those in the show notes for people to find you guys. Last fun question for you, uh, the three of you, is your favorite OR song. If you were to go to the OR right now, what song would you turn on? I would say Lizzo. Anything by Lizzo. Anything by Lizzo. Why is that? Because she's just so awesome. She gives you that energy. Like, you can do anything. At the risk of being a little cliche, (laughs) I don't control the OR music yet. I'm not quite at that point in my program, but... um, Eye of the Tiger, I feel like, is the perfect energy for operating. That is very focused. I think in general, our, we just have a country radio station that plays throughout the OR. But if I am primary, which is, I'll ask for Ashanti or Nelly. I just, 
I love those guys. Those are my songs. Country music is something I cannot do in the OR for some reason. Maybe it's just something that I just didn't grow up with. I can't do country music. <laughs> Confession here. Oh, you guys just have to get a good pair of cowboy boots, then you'll be fine. Yeah, we're going to get a lot of hate mail for this. You just lost some mentees there, Laura. <sighs> Shuts. She got all the ones that don't like country. Yeah. <laughs> so she gained mentees. <laughs> there you go. Well, Sarah, Lori, and Alexis, it was an honor to talk to you guys. And I'm very excited for where uh, your Instagram page will take us and will help contribute to this movement forward. And again, for the listeners out there, the Women's in OMFS Symposium is coming up on March 5th and 6th. And so if you go over to the University of Michigan website, you can definitely sign up and get started in this movement. And so thank you guys for your time. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you.